God, man the word made flesh. Originally written by Dr. George W. Carey and Inés Odura Perry. Published by Grimerica. Narrated by Graham Dunlop. Edited by Darren Grimes. 1920. The revolutionary planet Uranus entered the zodiacal sign Pisces, the fishes, in January 1920. Uranus is from a Greek word meaning heaven. The hour was struck that opens the door for a new dispensation for man, and the standing prophecy proclaimed trumpet-tongued down through the ages is now being fulfilled. The old order is dying amidst its worshippers. God's loosened thunders shake the world. Across the lurid sky the warbirds scream. Earth's millions die. Fear and woe unutterable. The fires of purification are lighted. Into the cosmic melting pot has been cast hate, race prejudice, selfishness, and the devils of greed. The towers of superstition and tyranny are falling. The thrones and scepters of kings lie scattered and crushed along the highway of nations. Pride has fallen from its insecure pinnacle of shame. The rich are terror-stricken. The silver has been cast into the street. Their gold has been removed from them. The merchants of the earth weep and mourn, for no man buyeth their merchandise. The churches are in panic. The liquor power rages. The gambler is terror-stricken. The grafting politician seeks a hiding place and finds none. The briber flees when no man pursueth. The priest and preacher pray, but no help comes, for they too must be judged. The harlot alone seems unafraid, because she is not a hypocrite. And has heard the word, the harlots will enter the kingdom before you. Mankind has gone to the limit of animalism. The soul walks forth naked and ashamed. It is high noon of the judgment day. Written in 1916. Redemption, the ultimate goal of humanity. Taoism. Man consisting of a trinity of spirit, mind, and body, cometh forth from the eternal, and after putting off desire, re-enters the glory of Tao. Brahmanism. Man's inner self is one with the self of the universe, and to that universe and to that unity it must return in the fullness of time. Buddhism. Man, fundamentally divine, is held in the three words by desire. Purification from desire leads the man to nirvana. Hebrewism. Man came into being through emanation from the will of the king, therefore is divine. Egyptian. Teaches the divinity of man, Osiris, as his source. Zoroastrianism. Man is a spark of the universal flame, to be ultimately united with its source. Orphic. Man has in him potentially the sum and substance of the universe. Christian. 
man made in the image of God, body, soul, and spirit, a trinity. The kingdom at hand. Man is within one step of his ideal, the ultimate goal of his desires, that realm of freedom where he will no longer be subject to law, but being led by the Spirit, will realize that he himself is an operator, an attribute of the law. Man is law in action. Will man now take the final step into complete liberty and become a god? or continue to eat the husks of dual concept and still cower beneath the lash of precedent and authority. There is no salvation or regeneration for man as long as he believes in vicarious atonement. The man who needs saving by that process is not worth the price. Recognition of eternal unity will save man from the idea that he needs saving because it will reconcile him to his place and mission in the plan, the great necessity. It will reveal to him his true kinship to the causeless cause, the beginningless beginning, and he will know that he is an attribute of universal energy from which all forms, thoughts, motions, sounds, colors, and so-called good and evil proceed. In the full light of this wisdom, Man will not search for personal saviors, nor quibble about the meaning of the words of men who died thousands of years ago. Jesus, Christ, truth, life, forever preaches the sermon of the ear of man. Lo, I am with you now. He that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh, the same is an antichrist. Only the spiritual blind look for the coming of truth or life, the Christ who is ever-present, or for the coming of a kingdom which is already at hand. When ye pray for a thing, know that ye have it now. If we accept a certain statement uttered as an ultimatum by someone who lived in the dim past, we may be called upon to reconcile the utterance with another opinion. Spoken or written by the same person, which seems to contradict previous statements in which we have placed our trust. These persons, being dead, cannot be asked for an explanation in regard to the seeming contradiction. If they could, they might respond, as Walt Whitman did, when a critic hinted that the You Good Grey poet contradicted himself. You do I contradict myself? Then I contradict myself. I am large, I contain multitudes. We must consider the facts that the opinions uttered by men in past ages extend over a period of years, during which time empires rose and fell, and new concepts of life, due to planetary and zodiacal changes, obtained recognition. Thus radical changes occurred in the social, religious, scientific, and industrial world. Viewing the question in this light, Need we wonder that the seers and sages and saints and scientists of the past should sometimes contradict themselves? Are we today so very consistent? Do we not enact what we call sacred laws, immediately violate them and carry the case to the court of last resort and get the sacred law repealed? We have had high and low tariff, bimetallism and gold standard, and our great statement valiantly upheld the free coinage of silver 
in the year 1895, and in 1896 these same captains of finance declared through the public press that free coinage of silver would destroy civilization, tear down the pillars of Hercules, and wrench the stars from their cosmic thrones. We have contradicted ourselves in our opinion of the Earth's shape, the distance to the sun, the origin and operation of electricity, the cause of light, the divisibility of elemental gases, and the circulation of the blood, the reality of hell and the devil, and other subjects too numerous to mention. Then shall we forever wrangle over the contradictory statements of dead men who wrought in their days as best they might, with the light and data at their command, with no thought that people in future ages would war to the death or live with hate in their hearts, for their fellows who differ with them on baptism the size of Noah's Ark, or whether a prophet swallowed a fish or fish swallowed a prophet? So much for the old world belief that the scriptures, writings, are records of men and women and places, geographical, historical, etc. These wonderful statements are fables, parables, allegories, dealing with the chemical, physiological, and anatomical and astrological operations of the human body, fearfully and wonderfully made. Great are the symbols of being, but that which is symboled is greater, vast the create and beheld, but vaster the inward creator, Richard Ralph. Books rejected by the Council of Nicaea and other ancient books. Books of the Koran, Persia, Hebrew meaning Passover, Esther, Solomon, Egyptian Book of the Dead, Adam, Eve, Enoch, Seth, Seventh Book of Moses, St. Thomas, the Doubter, Nicodemus, Tohotep, the oldest book known, the Kabbalah. Again, the researchers of such theological scholars as James Legge, LLD, first professor of Chinese at Oxford University, Professor W.M. Jennings, Ph.D., and Honorable Clement Allen of the Royal Ascetic Society, besides several hundred who might be named embracing the leaders of thought along lines of original sources, all agree that hundreds, if not thousands, of ancient manuscripts, tablets, and carvings indubitably prove that all races of all people that have ever inhabited the earth have striven as best they could to leave records of the chemistry and physiology of their own bodies. Science, Egyptology, Indo-Iranian, Chinese, Japanese, Persian, or Sanskrit, all, all, forever strove to solve the riddle of the human body. 700 years B.C., we have the Shu King, China's oldest book. The Shi King, 600 B.C. The Yi Kimmer, 1143 B.C. Then came Confucius, 551 to 478 B.C. The writings, statements, philosophy, and symbols of these witnesses of the truth of being corroborates our 66 witnesses in every detail. The writers of this book have in their possession a library of the ancient scriptures referred to above and know whereof they speak. 
but as printing and bookmaking is well nigh prohibited by cost, we feel that we are not justified in lengthy quotations. Again, nothing really new can be added after the knee plus ultra statement. There is no other way under heaven whereby ye may be saved except Jesus, Christed and crucified. However, for the information of our readers, we will give the table of contents of volume 14 of the sacred books and early literature of the East, entitled The Great Rejected Books. Old Testament Apocrypha, number one, the books of Adam and Eve, the lives of Adam and Eve, the Apocalypse of Moses, the Slavonic Book of Eve, number two, the writings attributed to Enoch, the great prophetic book of Enoch, the lost book of Noah, number three, the Apocalypse of Baruch, his vision of heaven. Number four, the story of Ahikar, the old Armenian version, the newfound ancient book, the New Testament of Prokofia. Number five, the Gospels of Christ's childhood, the Protoevangelium, or original Gospel of James, Gospel of Thomas the Doubter, the Gospel of Pseudo-Matthew, an Arabic Gospel of the Infancy. Number six, the Gospels of Nicodemus. The Greek Gospel of Nicodemus. A later Gospel. The Harrowing of Hell. The Acts of Pilate. The Letters of Pilate. Names. Names will be explained without alphabetical order. The object being to show that the 66 books of the whole book the holy book, were 66 statements by 66 different writers about the same identical subject, the human body, its chemical operation, and the planetary positions, impinging to create and bring into physical manifestation the visible universe. Atom, red earth, or flow of spirit or energy, damned up. Eve, mother of all the living, ether or pure spirit. Mother of God, water, fluid, essay. Cain, what has gotten acquisition, a spear, a smith, a worker? Abel, transitoriness, breath, vapor, moisture, absorbed, killed by Cain. Seth, seed, seedling or germ. Man, see Adam. Woman, Worn an, or womb in man, mankind. The regenerative womb, or manager in the solar plexus. See Bethlehem, house of bread. Nod, flight, cane absorbed, killed, able, moisture, and vegetation sprang up, shoot movement. Wife, marriage of earth and water. Joshua, Jehovah in salvation, son of none fish. Moses, drawn from the water fish. Abram, high father, father of elevation. Abraham, father of a multitude. Aaron, enlightened, Buddha, third eye. Hor, mountain, mountain of Aaron. 
situated on the east side of the great valley of the Arabah, the highest and most conspicuous of the whole range of the sandstone mountains of Edom, having closed beneath it on its east side the mysterious city of Petra. Petra, rock, rock city, south of Jericho. Edom, red. Edom, or Odumia, pituitary body. Jacob, circle, heel catcher, liar in wait applied to the twelve zodiacal signs, in astrology to the solar plexus, in physiology. Leah, first wife of Jacob, represented in astrology by several of the zodiacal signs, namely Reuben, Libra, Simeon, Scorpio, Levi, Sagittarius, and Judah, Capricorn, Isaacar, Gemini, Zebulun, Cancer, and Dina, Leo. The name means in Hebrew, wearied, weak, slow action, inferior. Rachel, second wife of Jacob, and Eu, mother of Joseph and Benjamin, represented in astrology by Virgo for Joseph. Benjamin having a deeply esoteric significance, it represents the product. Benjamin, son of the right hand, son of my old age, called first by his mother, son of my sorrow. He was the only child to be born in Palestine, the Holy Land. In Smith's Bible Dictionary, we find this, the ark was in Benjamin. To esoteric students, this statement is significant. Plainly speaking, Benjamin is the same as Jesus and refers to the seed or son that redeems. Palestine, land of the sojourners, country of Israel or Holy Land. Ararat, Holy Land. Abba, Father, God. Absalom, Father of Peace. Ada, Adea, and Adi. Ornament whom God has adored refers to pituitary body. Adonai, Lord. Zoheleth, the stone. Serpent, the rolling stone, the serpent stone, and the stone of the conduit. Gilgal, a circle or rolling away, the place where the twelve stones were set up, the place of the Passover, a hot depressed district, says Smith's Bible Dictionary, refers in anatomy to the twelfth dorsal vertebrae, at which place the semilunger ganglion connects. At this point the seed or arc enters Jordan or the spinal cord. Jordan, the descender, the flowing river, a river that has never been navigable, flowing into a sea that has never known a port. About 200 miles long, rising from the roots of anti-Lebanon to the head of the Dead Sea. The river of God, see Smith's Bible Dictionary, in anatomy, the spinal cord, the great nerve which is supplied with fluid from the claustrum and the cerebrum. The Jordan was crossed over by Joshua, fish, the son of Nun, fish, Smith's Bible Dictionary. As Joshua and Jesus mean the same, we see by this that this is the place of the baptism of Jesus. See further reference to this. Only two fords are mentioned in the Bible. These in anatomy are the end of the spinal cord at the 12th dorsal vertebrae and at the base of the skull. Smith also says that the true source of the Jordan is 
underground in phila, meaning vile or bowl. And on the right-hand side, it is from this cave that the Jordan commences its course above ground. Compare this description with the anatomy of the head and its meaning becomes clear. Smith tells us that the upper part of the slope is alive with bursting fountains and gushing streams that find their way into the Jordan. These, in anatomy, refer to the glands in the brain that connect with the spinal cord. Read, in Smith's Bible Dictionary, the wonderful description of this river. Genesareth, Gardens of the Prince, a crescent-shaped, moon-shaped, plain on the western shore of Lake Genesareth, which is also the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is the semilunar ganglion through which the seed of Jesus passes to reach the spinal cord. The Jordan enters in at the north and passes at south. It abounds in fish. Daughter. Bath. Anything regarded as feminine. Galilee. A circuit or circle. Nazareth. Shoot, sprout, twig. Capernaum. Village of Nahum. Consolation. Cana, place of reeds, lungs. Jericho, place of fragrance, cerebellum. Journey of Joseph and Mary. The marvelous story of the journey of Joseph and Mary to Jerusalem to pay their taxes, physiologically explained. On either side of the thalamus in the head is a gland known in physiology as the pineal. On the posterior, and the pituitary on the anterior side of the thalamus. The pineal is cone-shaped and secretes a yellow or golden fluid. The pituitary body, opposite it, is ellipsoid in shape and contains a whitish secretion, like milk. The fluids that are found in both these bodies come from the same source, namely the claustrum, which means barrier or cloister, and is referred to as cloister for the very good reason that a precious and holy thing is secreted or secluded there. St. Claus, or Santa Claus, is another term for this precious fluid, which is indeed a holy gift in the body of each one of us. The precious fluid which flows down from the claustrum separates, part going into the pineal gland and part to the pituitary body. And these, being special laboratories of the head, differentiate the fluid from the claustrum, and it takes on the colors above mentioned. And in the pineal gland becomes yellow and has electric properties. The pituitary body, having the milk-like fluid, has magnetic properties. These two glands are the male and female, the Joseph and Mary of the physical body, and are the parents of the spiritual son born in the solar plexus of each human being, commencing about the age of twelve. This yellow and white material, which is the milk and honey referred to in the Bible, the children of Israel, having been given the promise of a return to this land, flowing with milk and honey, at last reaches the solar plexus via semilunar ganglia, the Bethlehem of the physical body. In Hebrew, Bethlehem means house. Beth of bread, lehem. I am the bread of life says the allegorical Jesus. In the solar plexus is a thimble-shaped depression, a cave or manger, and in this is deposited a psychophysical seed, or holy child, 
born of this immaculate conception. The psychophysical seed is also called fish, as it has the odor of fish and is formed in the midst of the waters, the pure water. Jesus is a fish in the midst of the waters of St. Augustine. Before birth, the human fetus floats like a fish in the fluids by which it is surrounded. And it is with the child formed on the generative plane, so it is with the spiritual child born in the solar plexus, the Bethlehem. Joseph and Mary, by furnishing the material for the spiritual child, which was to redeem the child or body formed in generation, paid the symbolic redemption money. Holy Ghost, Greek for breath. The breath, descending the pneumogastric nerve in the solar center, enters the manger where Joseph and Mary are, and where is Jesus the seed literally conceived by the Holy Ghost? Man, God hath made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. There is an automatic procedure within the human body which, if not interfered with, will do away with sickness, trouble, sorrow, and death, as stated in the Bible. Truly, mankind, or the natural man, seeks many ways and means to prevent the upright, perfect, automatic way from accomplishing that whereunto it was sent. The natural man forever seeks pleasurable sensation, which is in enmity with God. Physical sensation, pleasures of sin for a season, or limited duration, referred to by Paul, are under the law or below the solar plexus. Hence, he that is led by the Spirit is not under the you. The 21st letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Shin, or Shin, lacks one of the complete alphabet, Tav, the 22nd letter meaning the cross. Herewith are given a few of the Greek and Hebrew characters that have been translated, Sin, or falling short, Hebrew, Asham, Het, Chet, Hata, Avon, translated iniquity more than 200 times, means conceived in sin and brought forth in an iniquity or sin. Pesha, in Greek we find this word written as harmartpha, proanartano, anamartidos, anomia, anomos, and parabino. Any act coming under the meaning of sin retards or prevents the automatic action of the seed, which if not interfered with, lifts up a portion, one-tenth of the life essence, oil or secretion, that constantly flows down the spinal cord, a straight and narrow way, and transmutes it, thus increasing its power manifold and perpetuating the body indefinitely, or until the ego desires to dissolve it by rates of motion set in action by its inherent will. If the allegories of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as well as Paul, epistles, and acts of the apostles teach anything, they teach the mastery and transmutation of the human body by anyone who obeys the physiological guide, the whole book, the Holy Bible. But let the reader observe that each of the 66 books, as well as an almost countless number of ancient books of all races and languages, 
teach the same mathematical and physiological facts. Man has turned the mighty power he possesses to every object and principle of force in the universe except himself, the greatest miracle of all. When man focuses his divine thinking lens upon himself, he will realize that he is the epitome of unlimited cosmic energy. Then the heavens will roll together as a scroll and reveal the real man as the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. It, the eternity of perfection. A child brought to its mother a piece of ice and asked, What is this? The mother answered, It is ice. Again the child asked, What is there in ice? The mother answered, There is water in the ice. The child desired to find the water in the ice, and it procured a hammer, pounded the piece of ice into little bits, and the warm air soon changed all the ice to water. The child was grievously disappointed, for the ice that the child supposed contained water had disappeared. And the child said, Where is the ice that contained this water? And so it came to pass that the mother was compelled, by the child's persistent questions, to say, Ice is all water. But there is no such thing as ice. That which we call ice is crystallized or frozen water. The child understood. A student brought to his teacher some water and asked, What is water? What does it contain? The teacher answered, Water contains oxygen and hydrogen, and then explained how the two gases might be separated and set free by heat. The student boiled the water until all the molecules of oxygen and hydrogen had been set free, but he was surprised to find that all the water had disappeared. Then the student asked of the teacher, Where is the water that held the gases that have escaped? Then the teacher was compelled by the student's persistent question to answer. Water itself is the product of oxygen and hydrogen. Water does not contain anything other than these gases. In reality, there is no such substances or fluid as water, in which we name water is a rate of motion set in operation by the union of two parts of hydrogen and one part of oxygen. And of course, the phenomenon disappears when the union of the gases is broken. The student understood. A devout scientist presented himself before God and said, Lord, what are these gases men call oxygen and hydrogen? The good Lord answered and said, They are molecules in the blood and body of the universe. Then spoke the scientist, Lord, wilt thou tell me of these kind of molecules that compose thy blood and body? The Lord replied, These same molecules, gases, or principles, Compose my body and my blood, for I and the universe are one and the same. Once again, the scientist said, My Lord, may I ask, then what is spirit and what is matter? And thus answered the Lord, As ice and water are one, and the gases and water are one, so is spirit and matter one. The different phases and manifestations cognizized by man in the molecules of my body, that is, the universe are caused by the word. Thus, they are my thoughts clothed with form. Now the scientist felt bold, being redeemed from fear, and asked, Is my blood then identical with thy blood in composition and divine essence? And the Lord said, Yes. Thou art one with the Father. 
The scientist now understood and said, Now mine eyes are opened, and I perceive that when I eat, I partake of thy body. When I drink, I drink of thy blood, and when I breathe, I breathe thy spirit. So-called matter is pure intelligence and nothing else, because there is not anything else. Pure intelligence cannot progress or become better. There is nothing but intelligence. Omnipresence, omnipotence, omniscience must be intelligence. Therefore, these terms are all included in the word. Let us adopt a short word that will express all that the above written words are intended to express, namely the word it. I stand for all the eternal, I. T stands for the operation, manifestation, vibration, action, or motion. The I in motion is T, or crossification, the T-cross, we say, it rains, it's cold, it is all right. What do we mean by it? Who knows? Some say the weather, others natural phenomena. Very well, then what do we mean by the weather or natural phenomena? Why just it, of course? It does not progress. It does not need to. It forever manifests, operates, differentiates, and presents different aspects or viewpoints of itself. But these different phases are neither good, better, nor best, neither bad nor worse, simply different shades and colorings of the one and only intelligence. Every so-called thing, whether it be animal, vegetable or mineral, molecule or atom, ion or electron, is the result of the one intelligence expressing itself in different rates of motion. Then what is spirit? Spirit means breath or life. Spirit that which is breathed into man must be intelligent, or man would not be intelligent. Non-intelligent substance, which is, of course, unthinkable, would not breathe into anything, nor make it intelligent if it did. Therefore, we see that spirit, intelligence, and matter are one and the same s in different rates in motion. So-called molecules, atoms, electrons know what to do. They know where and how to cohere, unite, and operate to form a leaf or a flower. They know how to separate and disintegrate that same leaf or flower. These particles of omnipresent life build planets, suns, and systems. They hurl the comet on its way across measureless deserts of stardust and emboss its burning path. From the materialistic and individual concept of life and its operations, it is pitiable and pathetic to view the wrecks along the shores of science. It is only when we view these apparently sad failures from the firm foothold of the unity of being and the operation of wisdom that we clearly see in these frictions and warring elements and temporary defeats and victories, the chemical operation of eternal spirit operating with its own substance, its very self. It is only through the fires of transmutation that we are enabled to see that all life is one eternal life, and therefore cannot be taken, injured, or destroyed. The fitful, varying, changing beliefs of men in the transition stage from the sleep and dreams of materialism to the realization of the oneness of spirit show forth in a babble of words and theories, a few of which I shall briefly consider, beginning with the yet popular belief in evolution. The evolutionary concept has its starting point in the idea, A, that matter, so-called, is something separate from mind, 
intelligence or spirit. B, that this manner has a beginning. C, that it contains within itself the desire to progress or improve. And finally, that the race is progressing, becoming wiser, better, etc. Against this assumption, I submit the proposition that the universe, one verse, always existed without beginning or ending and is always has been absolutely perfect in all its varied manifestations and operations. A machine is no longer stronger than its weakest part. If the self-existing universe is weak or imperfect in any part, it must, of necessity, always have been so. Having all the knowledge there is being all, it is unthinkable that there is any imperfection anywhere. Everything we see, feel, or taste, or in any manner sense, is perfect substance, condensed or manifested from perfect elements, but all differ in their notes, vibrations, or modes or rates of motion. A serpent is as perfect, therefore as good, as a man. Without feet it outruns a man, without hands it outclimbs the ape, and has been a symbol of wisdom through all the ages. Man is an evil thing to the serpent's consciousness. Neither are evil nor good. They are different expressions or variations of the play of the infinite will. The brain of the jellyfish is composed of the same elements, the same substance as the brain of a man, merely of a different combination. Can man tell what the jellyfish is thinking, or why it moves and manifests its energy thus or so? How then is man wiser than jellyfish because his thoughts are of a different nature and operate to different ends? Wisdom, all there is, is simple, operates, manifests, expresses forms, or creates them of self-existing substance. As wisdom is without beginning or end, so are all its operations or manifestations without beginning or end. Modern man is now taking his first lesson in condensing or materializing error. While through unnumbered ages the spider has performed the miracle without the necessity of first attending a school of chemistry. The modus operandi by which the spider forms his web from the air is the despair of science. The wisdom of the ant or beaver strikes dumb all the believers in the Darwinian dream. The perfect cooperative commonwealth of the bee is still the unattainable ideal of man. Beneath the soil upon which falls the shadow of the throne of Menelik, the Abyssian king, are layers and strata of buried civilizations and astronomers in China mapped the heavens, named the stars, calculated the eclipses and return of comets ages before Moses led the Hebrews out of bondage. Or the walls of Baalbek cast a shadow for the Arab and his camel. The evidences and witnesses of the wisdom of men on earth hundreds of thousands of years ago confront the scientific investigator at every turn. Here the Rosetta Stone, and there the inscribed cylinder of Arioch, or a statue of Gudea, king of Chaldea, prophecies inscribed on cuneiform tablets of clay, foretelling the building of the pyramids, are brought to light by the excavator, and the history of the Chinese empire running back in links of an unbroken chain for 150,000 years forever refute the theory of the descent of man. Side by side with the ancient Asiatics, who knew all that we know today, dwelt the crystal, the cell, the jellyfish, the saurian, the ape, and the caveman, 
side by side with the masons who could build arches of stone in ancient Yucatan that mock at the ravages of time, lived and wrought the ant, operating in its cooperative commonwealth, of which man can still only dream. Side by side with the caveman and cannibals dwell the spider, whose operation in aerial elements is the despair of chemical investigators. And when Solomon's golden-spired temple illuminated the holy city, or the Tower of Babel grew toward the clouds, or the mound builders recorded their history in rock and soil, the eagle and the dove calmly floated in the air and wondered when men would evolve to their plane of science. They are wondering still. Exponents of the evolutionary theory never tire in quoting Professor Huxley. One who has not read the writings of this eminent scientist would be led to believe by the statements of his followers that he had positive views on the great question of force and matter. Following is an extract from a letter written by Professor Huxley to Charles Kingsley under date of May 22, 1863, taken from the published letters of Huxley by his son Leonard. I don't know whether matter is anything distinct from force. I don't know that atoms are anything but pure myths. Cogito ergo sum is to my mind a ridiculous piece of bad logic. All I can say at any time being cogito, the Latin form I hold, to be preferable to the English I think, because the latter asserts the existence of an ego about which the bundle of phenomena at present addressing you knows nothing. I believe in Hamilton, Mansell, and Herbert Spencer. So long as they are destructive and laugh at their beards as soon as they try to spin their own cobwebs. Is this basis of ignorance broad enough for you? If you, theologian, can find as firm footing as I, man of science, do on this foundation of minus, not there will be not to fear for ever diverging. For you see, I am quite as ready to admit your doctrine that souls secrete bodies as I am the opposite one that bodies secrete souls, simply because I deny the possibility of obtaining any evidence as to the truth or falsehood of either hypothesis. My fundamental axiom of speculative philosophy is that materialism and spiritualism are opposite poles of the same absurdity, the absurdity of imagining that we knew anything about either spirit or matter. Huxley admitted that he did not know. As the appetite craves new chemical combinations of food from day to day, so does mind crave new concepts of infinite life. The word infinite defined an endless differentiation of concept. If the spiritual consciousness, the mighty angel, that the clairvoyant seer John the Revealer saw descending out of the heavens shall carry away the pillars of material evolution, a temple of truth divinely fair will spring, phoenix-like, to take its place. Eyes shall then be opened and ears unstopped. Man will then realize that the so-called lower forms of life are just as complex, wonderful and difficult to form as the organism of man that protoplasm is as wonderful in any other form as in the frame matter of the human brain which is only another form of its expression that the molecular composition of a jellyfish puzzles the greatest chemist, and the wisdom of a beaver is enough to strike dumb all the believers in the Darwinian fairy tale. And has the dream of good and evil any better foundation 
than has this one of material evolution? We are here to solve the problems of life, not to evade them, and to name the mighty operations of eternal wisdom, good and evil is simply evading instead of solving. The universal principle, spirit, or God is impartial. Saint and sinner are one in the eternal mind. God, or infinite life, is not in the least injured by so-called good or evil. The spiritual eagle is the interested party and must work out its own salvation. There is no point in the universe better, higher, or nearer God, or the center, or than any other point. All places are necessary, and no one is favored over any other. As Huxley well said, good and evil are opposite poles of the same absurdity. Good must have evil for its opposite, if it exists at all. He who would realize being must get rid of the concept of good, as well as the concept of evil. Good and evil are qualifications, and being does not admit of qualification or grades. It simply is. The ideal that we call good eternally exists, but its name is wisdom's operations. Nothing is low or high, good or bad, except to that individual concept which allows comparison. Comparisons are odious. Physical science, so-called, declares in its textbooks that light travels from sun to the earth in eight minutes, a distance of about 95 million miles. To question the statement a few years ago meant ostracism from the circle of the elect who know things. But today, the iconoclast stands at the gate of the temples of learning and batters at the walls with the hammer of Thor. Fear and trembling seize upon the votaries of material gods as they see evolution, progression, the theories of electricity, light and heat, good and evil, all cast into the crucible of truth for transmutation in the divine alchemy of being, all dissolving as pieces of ice of different sizes and shapes change to water. The present-day chemist, as he begins to tread the soil where stood the ancient alchemist, tells us that light and heat are simply the rates of motion of a substance that does not travel from star to star or from sun to planet, but vibrates in its place at rates direct by the eternal word. This substance, aerial or etheric, does not travel, it is everywhere, present the body of omnipresent being. Men now dare assert that there is no evidence that the sun is hot but there is evidence that the sun is a dynamo of the solar system and so vibrates the etheric substance that light, heat, cold, and gravitation are produced, not as entities separate from the universal elements, but as results or effects produced by different rates of motion of the molecules of the wire, molecular motion of the air or etheric substance as in wireless telegraphy. Another ancient belief, now obsolete, is the progression of man in a better state of existence after death or cessation of bodily functions. This idea had its origins in the fallacy that there were grades of goodness in the divine mind, and that somehow we are not treated right during earth life, and that, in consequence, we must be rewarded by an easy birth over there. But now we see quite clearly that the great cause of life and all its operations would be unjust to withhold from its sons and daughters for one moment anything that belonged to them. If the cause ever does wrong, we see no reason why it should repent and do right. 
If the cause ever failed in the least particular to give just dues, it may do so again at any time. The better state of existence mentioned above can only come through wisdom obtained here and now. Thus will man work out his own salvation. The time was, and not so very long ago, when the recognized scientists believed that there were about 74 elements, indivisible, separate, and distinct. But the alchemical iconoclast, with his hammer of truth, has pulverized the fallacy and remorselessly hammered and pounded the 74 faces into one countenance. For a long time, hydrogen gas, the negative pole of water, was supposed to be an indivisible beyond all question. But the present-day chemist knows it is only an expression of yet more subtle molecules back of which standeth God within the shadow keeping watch above his own. A post-mortem examination of some of the wrecks along the shores of the troubled sea of science discloses a belief that the ego is an individual who through knowledge of its divine origin may draw unto itself all things it may desire. But as fast as the sleepers awaken, they see that the ego is only part of one stupendous whole that does not draw unto itself anything. That there is no law of attraction for the eternal substance is everywhere and present, and each one uses exactly that portion prepared for him from everlasting unto everlasting. When the continuity of life was first demonstrated beyond question, those who caught the first dispatches from discarnate spirits sprang forth from their beds of material sleep, and with half-opened eyes only saw the great truth through a glass darkly. Then came a babble of words. They jabbered a jargon that needed translation to be understood. The ideas of progression in earth life that obtained among men were transplanted to the spirit realm and were told by the votaries of spiritual philosophy that men and women had great opportunities for progression after leaving the flesh. As the idea of a commencement of the universe was a common belief among those asleep in material consciousness, being the cornerstone of evolution, so the idea obtained that the individual had a commencement in the material human laboratory. As these half-awakened individuals could not comprehend that an action contrary to their concept of good could possibly be caused by infinite intelligence, they concluded that the so-called bad actions of men and women were prompted by evil earthbound spirits. These people... Many of them also thought that the main object of the existence of spirits in the spirit realm was to gather information about mines and stocks and bonds and lotteries and races, and thus assist poor mortals to get rich quick. It was supposed to be that these spirits were posted in regard to deeds and wills and knew when wealthy relatives would shuffle off to the moral coil, or when undesirable wives or husbands would pass out. But at last, the Son of Truth pierced the darkness and the jargon of selfishness changed to the new song. We now see clearly that each spirit is a part or attribute of the one eternal spirit, therefore has existed always and that the process of generation deals with flesh clothing or mask for the spirit in which it performs a necessary part in the creative process. The word person is derived from a Greek word persona, meaning mask. We see that the phenomena we have called obsession by evil spirits is God's surgery or dynamic operation in his own temple quite as impossible for us to understand in our present environment as it is for a child 
to understand the wisdom and necessity in the operation of the adept surgeon. And finally, we now see and realize fully that eternal wisdom, without beginning or end of days, does not progress before entering a temple of flesh, while it occupies it or after it leaves it. All creative or formative processes may properly be termed operations of wisdom or eternal life. In the unwalled temple of the now, beneath its roofless dome there is no progression, but a constantly moving panorama, forever presenting to consciousness new phases of the absolute. The men and women who do things take hold of opportunities and material that they find all about them now and operate with them, astonishing results following the efforts of all who recognize the eternal force has use for them now to carry out the divine plan. We are all operators or workmen in the divine workshop, and the divine intelligence, the eternal it, made no mistake in placing any of us here but does insist that we recognize that now is the time and here is the place to do our best. As the great cause does not need to first practice on lower forms in order to get some future time to attain perfection, we must recognize and practice being in the present, instead of becoming in the future, for the eternal now is all the time there is. But you say, your science has taken away my God and I know not where you have lain him. On the contrary, I have brought you to the one true God, which was, and is, and evermore shall be. The fifth verse of the last chapter of the book of Job reads as follows, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. The wonderful writings and scientific statements found in that book of all books, the Christian Bible, were recorded at dates covering thousands of years by men and women who have never heard of each other. Some of these teachers lived way back in the age when the solar system was swinging through the zodiacal sign Taurus, when phallic worship prevailed, when the number six was understood as sex, and the creative or formative principle operating through the sex functions was worshipped as the very holy of holies. Other teachers who contributed to the knowledge of life and its operations, contained in the Bible, lived in the age of Aries, a fire sign, when fire and sun were worshipped as the essence of God, and as heat, the cause of the phenomena called fire, cannot be seen. It was a reasonable thing to say that no one can see God and live. So then it depends upon the point of view one has of God, or the spirit of things, whether he says, no one can see God and live, or says, Now mine eye seeth thee. The writer of the book named Job must have lived more than 8,000 years ago, even before the Taurian age symbolized by the winged bulls of Nineveh, which was in the Gemini age, the age of perception and expression being an air age. Let it be understood that an age in this connection means 2200 years, the period for the solar system to pass across one of the signs of the zodiac. In an air age, egos awaken to their divine heritage and realize their godhood. The writer of Job, then, living in the Gemini or air age, could see God and live. Our solar system has entered the sign of Aquarius, another air sign, and the spiritualized elements so act upon our brain cells that we are able to understand the teachers of a past air age and also see God and live. 
Carlyle, the prince of literary critics, said the book of Job is the most wonderful and beautiful literary production ever given to the world. Certainly the scientific truths of astrology and alchemy and of the spirit's operation in flesh and set forth in that book are without a parallel. The letters J-O-B have an occult scientific meaning. I and J are the same. I-O-B meaning the same as Job. I means the eternal I. All the Hebrew letters were formed from I. O means the universe without beginning or end. And B means Beth, a body, house, church, or temple. Therefore, God, or all, may be discovered as seen in Job, or I-O-B. The word Job has no reference to a person. The name or letters of the word symbolize principle, the same as wisdom, knowledge, intelligence, or Christ or Buddha. We symbolize the principles of our government and personalities and picture them in the form of a man or woman, namely Uncle Sam or Columbia. But we do more than that. We put words in their mouth and make them utter speech. And shall we ignore these facts when dealing with the record of past ages? One record plainly states that Jesus spoke only in parables. But let us consider more closely the discovery of God, the numerical value of G-O-D, according to ancient Kabbalah, is nine, the all of mathematics no person is alluded to. If the statement I and the Father are one is true, the I must be the Father manifested or expressed. As it is not possible to conceive of the Father except through expression, we must conclude that manifestation in some form of so-called matter is eternal, the great necessity, and has therefore always been. It is quite reasonable to think that some oxygen and hydrogen has eternally existed in gaseous form, some in the combination that causes water, and some in the concrete or concentrated form known as ice. Then, upon the postulate that spirit and matter, that is, bodily or material expression are one, it follows logically that matter, including the physical body or temple of man, is as necessary to the father-mother principle, while held in a given rate of activity or expression, as this life essence is necessary to matter, or the physical structure of man. I see oxygen and hydrogen when I look at the manifestation we call ice. When I see water, I know just how oxygen and hydrogen appear when united. So when I look at any form of so-called matter, I know exactly how God appears at that particular time and place. I do not see the effect or works of God, but I see God, and just as much of God face to face as I am capable of seeing or recognizing at a certain time. Step by step, the scientific investigator is being led to the threshold of the awful absolute truth that all matter, or substance, or energy, or force, call it what you may, is not only intelligence, but is pure intelligence itself. Atoms, molecules, electrons are but expressions of rates of motion of pure mind, thought, or intelligence that man has personified and called God. Ice is not permeated with water or controlled by water. Ice is water. Matter is not controlled by mind. Mind and matter are one. A high vibration of mind does control, to a certain extent, a lower vibration of mind. As water may carry a lump of ice here or there, water being more positive rate of activity of the same thing, the particles, so-called, of matter know what to do. 
The atoms that compose a leaf know when to cohere and materialize a leaf, and they know how and when to disintegrate and dematerialize it. Thou shalt have no other gods. I hold in my hand that particular form of one thing called a rose. Material thought says that it is made by God, or that God is in the rose or back of it, or that God caused or created it. But when spirit, the I am, asks where is the God that created the rose, where has he betaken himself, material belief is silent. But hold a moment. I have here a bud, a half-formed rose. If God makes a rose, he must continue the work to completion. Ah, speak softly, look closely. The rose is now being made, and you say God is making it? Yes, you said God made this full-blown rose. Well then, he is surely now at work on this half-blown rose. Bring on your spectroscope, your microscope. Quick now, you chemist. Bring on your test tubes, your acids, your alkalis, your spectroscope and x-ray. Analyze, illuminate and magnify. Now we shall discover God. He is here at work before our eyes. What do you see, chemist? What do you see, scientist? Ah, I know what you see. My experience in the realm of matter and of spirit, tell me what you see. O oh, thou stupendous sex force, sex days of creation, thou father, mother, Yahweh, thou divine male and female, thou eternal positive and negative dynamis, we now behold the operating. Out from the chemicalizing mass of God's creative compounds, out of the quivering, vibrating substance, slowly comes forth the rose. But are you sure it is a rose? Hold a moment. What is a rose? Of what material is it formed? Ah, the chemist speaks. He is of crucibles and test tubes and acids. Hear the chemist. He says, the rose is made from the universal substance. Or the rose is universal substance and a certain rate of activity. Thanks. Blessed be the chemist. Universal one, verse one, substance, no other substance. God is the rose. Or the smile we call a rose God is again manifested in the great eternal it, for which there is no other name. Job did not say it, I see the thoughts of God, nor did he say, I can fathom the mind of God. The plan cannot be seen. By that which is planned, a planet can be seen. One may see the substance of God without understanding the mind of God. Let us hear Emerson on this stupendous, glorious theme. The great idea baffles wit. Language falters under it. It leaves the learned in the lurch. Nor art, nor power, nor toil can find the measure of the eternal mind. Nor hymn, nor prayer, nor church. O thou ever-present divine mind and substance, we now fully realize our oneness with thee and bathe and revel in thy glory. The mighty angel of reality has torn the veil of illusion and we see the celestial city of truth with wide open gates and the white light of eternal love forever upon its streets. O thou in the shadow of sickness and trial, take up thy bed and walk, thy sins be forgiven thee. Sarah and Abram Sarah, or Sariah, Abraham Why was the letter H added to Sarah and Abram? Hef, Chef, is the eighth letter of the Hebrew alphabet and means a field. Something perceived or that can be cultivated in short, 
spiritual perception. In the story of Sarah and Abraham, we find the marvelous truth that age imposes no limit or barrier to the birth of the incorruptible seed, Peter, for it it is eternal life. Sarah, at the age of 90, is told by an angel that she will give birth to a child. Abram, at the age of 100, received information that he would be the father of an offspring. Immediately following these revelations, the letter UH was added to both names. See 16th and 17th chapters of Genesis. Abraham and Sarah now find Isaac, which in Hebrew means laughter or happiness. Thy seed shall be as the sands of the sea. Unto Abraham and his seed was the promise given. And unto thy seed, which is Christ, Paul. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, David, Solomon, Isaiah, etc., etc., are not historical characters. Pontius Pilate, Darius, Pharaoh, Herod are names of ruling offices or functions, not certain individuals, no dates being given to any so-called transaction in the scriptures, or to any of Paul's epistles, nor to the Acts of the Apostles. Pilate means dart, javelin, a giving up, death. Pontius means sea, the open sea, marine. Herod means heroic. Pharaoh, rulership. Darius, coercer, conservator, see presidency, judgeship, etc. The Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John, first chapter. W O R D. This combination of letters does not mean, in its first and original sense, voice, sound, or speech. Physiologically speaking, it means a precious substance. Therefore, as mankind must be placed on their feet, physically before the same condition can exist mentally and spiritually, we must get down to fundamentals and give the word physiological meaning of W-O-R-D. The Hebrew alphabet consisted of 22 letters, each letter having a concrete meaning. In the formation of Hebrew characters, letters were chosen, which then combined indicated plainly every phrase of that idea which they wished to express. Now let us take the word, W-O-R-D, dissect it, and understand the meaning of each letter. There is no letter W in the Hebrew alphabet. That which they used to designate our letter W was VV, double V, which is used in our modern French. Its meaning is hook. The arms and legs are the hooks of the body. VV then, or double V, is the 18th letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the characters which they used to express that letter were written thus, T-Z-A-D-D-I, almost unpronounceable. This letter is also, as we write it, the 18th in our alphabet. Its number has a great significance. As the ninth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Teph, represents the equilibrium of the father and mother, the perfect balance of the male and female, or positive and negative forces, as manifested in the perfected or completed human being. So the 18th letter, Zadzi, or double V, 
is the representation of the fall of spirit toward the material world or the material body and its passions. In astronomy, it corresponds with the zodiacal sign Aquarius. As the sixth letter of the alphabet, Vav, expresses the struggle between the passions and conscience, the antagonism of ideas. So the 18th letter, VV, which is three times six or 666, represents the beast, which we read of in Revelation, the Adam man. On the mental plane, we use the expression of he, Fren, for this number, the lower mind, the material mind. In astronomy, the affinity of this letter, six, is the bull, Taurus. Mankind, living wholly on the material plane, is hence a beast, a beast physically, mentally, and emotionally. Animal on three planes. Thus, in the tarot, we find that 18 represents antagonism. Placing the two Vs together, one over the other, they represent the two arms and the two legs of the regenerated man, as the upper V or triangle points downward. In the regenerated man, the hands are folded together over the head in adoration of divinity, and thus the apex points upward. In the lower triangle, the same change takes place. The forces hitherto misused, going downward and outward, are sent upward and returned to the holy of holies. The triangle becomes closed at the bottom and opened upward. The letter W, then, or VV, represents the earthly or Adam man, the material body and the lower mind. The letter O, the 16th letter of the alphabet, written Ayan in Hebrew, has somewhat the same meaning as the first letter, but in a deeper sense alludes to a material building, an operation in the visible and material world. The materialization of God, the Holy Spirit, the entrance of the Holy Spirit into the visible world, the tarot tells us. Since God, one, is individual or undivided, and undifferentiated, to manifest in the material plane, God, or that, must divide, must become two halves of the circle, must manifest as positive and negative, male and female, electricity and magnetism. From this we deduce the expression dual power or dual operation, dual force. In astronomy this is represented by the sign Capricorn. These dual forces operating within us thus become the goat, which bears away the sins of the world, circle material body. In the average human being, this dual power is not operating in harmony. The action is unequal. If these two currents operating in harmony in the human body, the regenerated man would be manifested. The flesh would have become the word itself. The letter R is the 20th letter, written resh, and the symbolism of this letter is most wonderful. It represents the head of man and is, therefore, associated with the idea of original and determined movement. It is the sign of motion itself, good or bad, and expresses the renewal of things with regard to their innate power of motion. It corresponds to Saturn. Resh also symbols rest. A ship may rest on water that is in motion. The description of the inner meaning of this letter in the tarot, throws a flood of light upon it as used in its present position in WORD. As it has a deep esoteric significance. To quote, you a tomb opens in the earth and a man, a woman, and a child issue from it. Their hands are joined in signs of adoration. 
How can the reawakening of nature under the influence of the word be better expressed? We must admire the way in which the symbol answers to the corresponding Hebrew hieroglyphic. Comment on the above quotation is scarcely necessary, yet for the convenience of those yet not able to figure it out for themselves, let it be said that the tomb, cave, or manger is the birthplace of the seed, the word, the son of man, which redeems the Adam man, if not interfered with. Under the influence of the word, indeed, is the carnal man, dead in trespass and sin, reborn to a new life. The letter D, the fourth in the Hebrew alphabet, as also in ours, is written Daleth, and means the womb, or door, mouth. It denotes abundance springing from division. Thus Daleth expresses a creation made by a being, according to divine laws. It expresses domination of spirit over matter. The tarot thus wonderfully interprets its meaning. In the divine reflex of the Father, it is the will. In the human reflex of Adam, it is power. In the natural reflex of Naturna, Naturans, it is the universal creative fluid, the soul of the universe. In astronomy, its affinity is Jupiter. Summing this up, we can see that the letter D stands for the solar plexus in the human body, and it is the reflection of the true Son, the Father, and the source of all things. W-O-R-D, then, means this. The creation, according to divine laws, from the universal creative fluid, in the tomb, cave, or manger of the earth, solar plexus, of that perfect one, seed, fish, fruit, Jesus, Vishnu, Joshua, Moses, Horus, etc., which has the power to spiritualize, regenerate the Adam man, so that he becomes the Lord God from heaven, the Word made flesh. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. We realize then that the Word does not refer to speech. The Hebrew letter which signifies speech is phi, the seventeenth letter. It refers to the force which dispenses the essence of life, which gives it the means of perpetually renewing its creations after destruction. We can speak destructively, and we have the power to speak constructively. The two letters, O and R, combined, are used to specify a precious substance, originally referred to as gold, for the ancients realized that the sun's rays, which they called golden, precipitated in the human body and formed creative substance. The Bible tells us that man does not live by bread alone, but every word, or seed, that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, proving that in order to truly live, we must save the precious substance. In Anatomy, the passage way underneath the sutures, which leads down into the thalamus, is the mouth of God. For it is from the cerebrum, the upper brain, that the most wonderful gift to the human body comes. This represents the unseen mouth. The visible mouth is the solar plexus. We can turn the pages of Gray's Anatomy, or any good medical dictionary, and examine carefully the illustration of a 26-day-old fetus. We see then that almost the entire body consists of a brain substance, in fact. It looks like an elongated brain. The upper brain, or father-mother substance, is what furnishes the material from which the body is made. 
Verily, it is the Alpha, the beginning. Degenerates and people living in excesses have greatly become deficient in this precious material, and the whole appearance of the body testifies to the desecration of the temple. Man can become regenerated and thus save his soul, which is sown in corruption so that it may be raised in corruption. We can compare speech with the operations of the processes of the planets. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth its handiwork. Day into uttereth speech, and night into showeth knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. The heavens, or the planets in the heavens, have their own particular influence. Operation or speech upon this planet of ours? We admit that the moon rules the tides, that without the sun we could not live, so why deny the influence of the other planets? Thus we see from the foregoing that word and voice or speech are two entirely different things, and that John meant the precious creative substance when he spoke of the word. Now this is the parable. The seed is the word of God. Luke 8.11 Seed, word, and God are all synonyms of one and the same thing, the wonderful creative substance, the universal S, from which all things are brought forth and in which all things are. The scriptures or allegories and parables of the Bible are the only writings that give us information as to what the word of God is. Therefore, in this book, we will quote what is written there in regard to it. Seed is the cause, the nucleus of everything. Therefore, a seed is the beginning, and the beginning was the word. The fluid, oil or marrow, which flows down the spinal cord, comes from the upper brain, the creator or father, the most high, and is known in physiology as ovum, or generative seed of that life essence which creates the human form of corruptible flesh. In the Greek, from which the New Testament was translated, this marrow is called Christ, which is the Greek word for oil. When this oil is refined, transmuted, lifted up, raised, it becomes so highly vitalized that it regenerates the body and overcomes the last enemy, death. How can it be lifted up? By lifting up the Son of Man, the seed, the word, the Savior, the oil, Christ, in the spinal cord, is the salt which is mentioned in the Bible. And the Savior is the seed, or Jesus. The salt and the Savior both come from the same source, the same place, the Father, the upper brain. In the Bible allegory, the seed, Jesus, is made to say, Without my Father I can do nothing. The material from the Father which forms the seed has gone through a different process from that which forms the oil. The chemical formula of the oil is John, J-O-H-N. And Jesus was baptized or anointed of John, not by John, as it is incorrectly quoted. See article on oil. If we lift up or raise the oil in the spinal cord by the power of the seed, by saving it, it must be a physiological and chemical operation within the body of each of us. Such is the case. There is no mystery, no marvel in all the universe that is greater than man himself. Man, know thyself confronts us down through the ages, but only a few have paid attention to the voice of the Delphic Oracle. Only a few have looked within. There is a wonderful straight and narrow way, a real straight, not straight. 
which extends from the upper brain, the cerebrum, to the end of the spinal cord, otherwise named Jordan in the Bible. We find that the meaning of this in Hebrew is descender or river of God. The straight and narrow way is indeed the river of God, for it leads to the Father, the Most High, the upper brain. As the Jordan empties into the Dead Sea, so the spinal cord terminates in that section of the anatomy, which is designated in medical terminology as Sodom. Josephus refers to the region as the Lake of Sodom, and in other writings we find it referred to as the Sea of Lot and Lake Asphaltus. The student of symbology can easily see that it is the slimy pool from which springs up the lotus, whose flower of a thousand petals blooms forth, reflecting in its golden heart the image of its creator. The wonderful pneumogastric nerve rising in the floor of the fourth ventricle of the head and connected with the cerebellum crosses the spinal cord, or Jordan, at the base of the skull Golgotha and sends numerous branches to the throat, lungs, heart, and stomach, terminating in a plexus under the latter organ, which is named the androgynous brain, the stomach brain, or solar plexus. This wonderful nerve has six different physical functions. In addition to the deeply esoteric office of being the channel for the Holy Breath or Holy Ghost, without which there would be no conception of the Holy Child, the Word. In Bible terminology, the solar plexus also means manger, cave, Bethlehem, for it is in the center of this plexus of nerves that we find the thimble-shaped cavity or depression from which issues forth the Redeemer of the Adam man. In a dual sense, it is the house of bread, as it is the place where the divine bread or seed is formed, and it lies directly back of the house of material bread, the stomach. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word seed that cometh from the mouth of God. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and this word means in Hebrew, house, Beth, the bread, lehem. See how wonderfully the Hebrew words express the true meaning of the hidden truth, I am the bread of life. In the central part of the head is the wonderful chamber or bed called the thalamus. Santee's anatomy of the brain and spinal cord describes it thus, it is the great ganglion of the inner brain. The thalamus is an important sensory relay station. Its medial part is concerned with the smell and its lateral part with the common sensation and taste. According to Head and Holmes, it is also an organ of consciousness for impulses of pain and temperature. The third ventricle separates the thalami from each other, except at the midpoint where they are joined by the mass intermedia. The thalamus is situated behind and medial to the corpus striatum and projects backward over the midbrain. Laterally, it rests against the superior lamina of the internal capsule, which separated it from the lentiform nucleus. The thalamus is shaped like an egg with a small end directed forward. It measures 4 centimeters, or about 1 and 1 half inches in length, and 2.5 centimeters of 1 inch in width and thickness. It has an interior and posterior extremity of four surfaces, superior, inferior, medial, and lateral. The most striking statement in the above paragraph is that the thalamus is egg-shaped, and we can readily see why there is so much reference made in ancient religions to the egg. 
For the thalamus with its adjacent appendages, when viewed in cross-sections of the brain, look exactly like a beetle, the body egg-shaped, and the horns of the lateral ventricle typifying the horns of a beetle. In the scarabaeus of Egypt, it has exemplified the egg of immortality, the light of the world. It is the chamber, the holy of holies, wherein is concealed the Ark of the Covenant. In the Egyptian Book of the Dead, we find this referred to as the Boat of Seeker. Every religion which has existed down through the ages has told in its own terminology the same story, the same physiological process taking place within the body of man. On the posterior side of the thalamus, we find the pineal body. It is a cone-shaped body, 6 millimeters, 0.25 inches, high, and 4 millimeters, 0.17 inches in diameter, joined to the roof of the third ventricle by a flattened stalk, the habenula. Santee tells us that the interior of the pineal body is made up of closed follicles surrounded by ingrowths of connective tissue. The follicles are filled with epithelial cells mixed with calcareous lime matter, the brain sand, a circulus cerebri. Calcareous deposits are found also on the pineal stalk and along the choroid plexus. The function of the pineal body is unknown. Descartes facetiously suggests that it is the abode of the spirit, the sand of man. The most significant statement in the above paragraph to the esoteric student is the reference to the calcareous deposit the brain sand. Now indeed do we find the words of the great occultist, Madame Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, written nearly half a century ago, justified, proved true in the light of modern science. Who now dares to lightly cast aside the statements of seers and mystics recorded in secret and sacred doctrines as unreliable and untrue. The upper section of this pineal body is the optic, or eye, this all-seeing eye. It is the wonderful light of the candle, which gives light to the whole house. The pineal body is the male spiritual organ. If you ask for proof as to its being a male organ, you can find indubitable proof by referring to any good physiological chart or anatomy, for you will see that the lower portions of this organ have been given the names. Corpora quadrumina, which means fourfold bodies, two nates, buttocks, and two testes, testicles. Thus we see that in spite of our incredulence, even the scoffing scientist has unwittingly demonstrated the truth of occult investigations in respect to this body. In esoteric as well as physiological meaning, this is Joseph, meaning to increase, the father of Jesus, the seed, the redeemer. It is the organ through which the electrical forces of the body play. It is, in other words, one of the differentiators of that, the universe S deposited, materialized in the cerebrum, the upper brain. In the medieval Hebrew, as quoted from the sacred books of the East, it is referred to as the crystalline dew from heaven, deposited in the cranium. The marvelous symbology of our own Bible is duplicated in all the ancient scriptures and all the nations of the world. Some of this wonderful S, the, this father, flows down from the upper brain into the pineal body, where it is differentiated, becomes masculine, positive, electrical, in quality and action. On the other side of the thalamus is located the pituitary body, the feminine spiritual organ. 
It is a small, reddish, ellipsoid organ and a depression of the sphenoid bone and is attached to the brain by a penduncle. It has two lobes, one of yellowish-gray and the other reddish-gray color. It secretes a mucus or phlegm, and the latter substance is what gives it its name. It also receives its secretion from the father, the universal S, the undifferentiated substance from which all things are brought forth. Flowing into this gland, it becomes magnetic, female, in its quality and action. It is the mare, Mary, pure sea or water, the mother of the holy child. The pineal gland is directly referred to in the Bible as Mount Pineal, where Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord. In Hebrew, the word means face of God. It is indeed the face of God, the top of this gland being the eye. Where can the eye be located save in the face? Connected with the pineal gland is a nerve called the pingala in secret writings. This nerve crosses the spinal cord at the base of the skull and the medulla oblongata and follows down the right side of the spinal cord to its end. Likewise, connected with the pituitary body is the nerve ida, which crosses the spinal cord at the same place where the pingala crosses, follows down the left side of the spinal cord to its base. Here the two nerves converge into the body through the semilungal ganglion, where they merge into the solar plexus. The divine S which has been differentiated by entering these two glands, has become Mary and Joseph, the mother and father of the Holy Child. This material, this actual substance, enters the solar plexus where it combines with the holy breath, and the seed is born, the bread is made, which is intended to be eaten in the Father's kingdom. The first seed is formed in the solar plexus of every individual commencing at the age of 12, which we have designated as the age of puberty. Thereafter, it is formed every 29 days, this taking place in each individual at the time of the month when the moon is in the sign which the sun was at the birth of the individual. Herod, Pharaoh, the passions, desires, and emotions seek to slay this divine babe. Here we will quote the Sanskrit statement in regard to the danger always present for the seed, child, fruit, or fish as given in volume 2, of the Secret Doctrine by H. P. Blavatsky. While Vevasvada was engaged in devotion on the riverbank, a fish craves his protection from a bigger fish. He saves it and places it in a jar, solar plexus, which, growing larger and larger, communicates to him the news of the forthcoming deluge. Note, goldfish in Vevasvada, Manu, the son of Surya, the Son and the Savior of our race, is connected with the seed of life, both physically and spiritually. The significance of the above is apparent. In the Bible, we find this statement, Joseph shall have a double portion. Joseph was one of the children of Jacob, which means circle in Hebrew. His name was afterwards changed to Israel, so that the sons of Jacob are also the sons of Israel. The signs of the zodiac are also referred to as the children of Jacob, and when applied in physiology, referred to the solar plexus and the twelve forces centered there. All the forces which enter the body of man are received in this part of the body, and are sent out from there. Joseph represents one of these divisions or centers, and this is one of his portions. The other is the pineal gland, that also being Joseph. Thus, all the so-called tribes referred to as Gad, 
Rubin, Levy, etc., etc., refer to the forces operative in the human body and not to the bodies of people. We find then this seed, fruit, fish, bread, and Savior born in the solar plexus. We must lift up, save, or raise this seed. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. John 12.32 It must be taken into the spinal cord, or in other words, be baptized of John. It must be anointed with oil. We find that there is oil present in the spinal cord. The subject will be dealt with elsewhere in this book. In the book of Joshua, we find the story of the Ark of the Most High God being taken by the priests of the twelve tribes into the Jordan. And again, in the New Testament, we find the identical story in the baptism of Jesus of John, oil, in the Jordan. The Hebrews told a story in the Old Testament, and the Greeks gave theirs in the New Testament. In Joshua's, a fish in Hebrew, story, we find that he commanded the sun and moon to stand still while he slew his enemies. The semilunar ganglion, which is attached to the solar plexus, is identical with the moon. Nerves from the plexus extend to the lower parts of the body and, in fact, connect with the organs of generation. No wonder Joshua commanded these forces to be still so that the seed could pass into the Jordan in safety for we find that just below the passageway into the spinal cord is another called the fish gate, which leads directly to the genitals. If the lower desires are not stilled, this seed or fish will be swallowed, killed by the generative fish. When these lower forces are controlled, the high priests of the body, the higher forces are in command, and the seed is taken into the Jordan. At the time of the flood, when the Jordan overflowed its banks and stood up, was the ark carried into the Jordan? This proves conclusively the exact location, physiologically, of the entrance into the spinal cord. For this portion of the cord is the broadest it is where it stands up or contacts with that part of the anatomy termed Sodom and Gomorrah. At the place where the ark entered the water, the twelve men were chosen to set up stones, and the Bible tells us that they are there to M's day. These twelve stones correspond to the twelve dorsal vertebrae, to each vertebrae of which a nerve is attached that forms part of the solar plexus. These twelve nerves terminate in the solar plexus, and there are twelve priests whose services enable the ark to enter the river of God. The twelve forces then bore this ark up out of the water. They broke down the walls of Jericho and entered the city with the ark of the Most High God. In the New Testament story, Jesus was baptized in the Jordan. Then, when the time came for his crucifixion, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. In anatomy, this is near the medulla oblongata, with the olives on either side, a physiological fact as any anatomy proves. There are two pyramids also at this place. In anatomy, Golgotha, place of the skull in Hebrew, is the base of the skull where the spinal cord enters the head. At this point is a double cross made by the Adi, the Pingala, and the pneumogastric nerves. They are the St. George and St. Andrew crosses, with the form of a man displayed therein. Many very ancient Byzantine coins and frescoes show this deeply esoteric symbol. The same eight-pointed star or combined crosses appears on the amulets and seals of ancient Chaldea, Babylon, 
Assyria, Persia, and India. Can we no longer doubt that the ancient records told the same story as in found in our own scriptures and that it was all in regard to one thing, one process, the master of the body? The seed then is crucified on the cross. It is raised in power, for nowhere does the crucifixion mean death. We cross animals to improve the breed, the qualities. Crossed electric wires produce a more powerful current. By the process of crossing or crucifixion, therefore, this seed took on an added power, in fact received the illumination, which the seed had previously asked for, the hour has come. Father, glorify thy Son, that thy Son may glorify thee. At the moment of glorification or illumination, the seed did not say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It is a gross mistranslation. It, moreover, is not at all in keeping with the tenor of the request, just previous to passing on to the cross. The correct translation of this exclamation is, My God, my God, how thou dost glorify me. Does this not seem more in keeping with the calm and earnest request, Father, the hour has come? Read John and note glory and glorify. John, or loans, is ointment, or oil, here personified. Glorify means to illuminate, to give light, glow ray. The passing of the seed over the cross nerves and its passage into the pineal gland does, in very truth, cause the illumination of the hash of light, the raising or illumination of consciousness of the individual in which this process is allowed to take place. For it is man that prevents its accomplishment. After the crucifixion, the body of Jesus is claimed by Joseph, and it is taken by him into his tomb, where no man has ever been laid. This Joseph is the same Joseph, the father of Jesus, the pineal gland, for no other man, no seed has been absorbed by the gland previously, for this is the first seed that has been saved. In other words, the son returns to the father, the seed returns to its source. The father and the son have become one. No other explanation save a physiological one can make clear this statement of Jesus. And greater things than I do, ye shall do, for I go unto my Father. The first seed that has been saved apparently makes this statement. When the first seed is saved, the entire body is changed. It vibrates at a higher rate. The fluids are purer. In twenty-nine and one-half days, another seed is born, and the material form which this seed is formed is of more of a refined substance, of greater power. Therefore, when it is crucified, it is not of greater power than the first seed. The third seed will also have been raised to the third power, and so on. The entire body is changed by raising or saving of the seed. Paul says, Ye are transformed by the renewing of your minds. The mind, the brain, is indeed renewed by each seed that is carried into the pineal gland, with the accompanying oil, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy. This, then, is the process whereby the Word, which is also God and seed, regenerated, transforms the Adam man so that he becomes the Lord God from heaven. There are many direct references to the process, among which are the following. Corinthians 1, 1 to 8, 
but let a man examine himself, and so eat of that bread and drink of that cup. 11.29 For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Damn or damnation simply means to check or stop the going on or procedure. Cor 11.30 For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Acts I, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. To John, the seventh verse, He that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, the same is Antichrist. John 3.3 3. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. 1 John 3.9 Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Peter 1.23 Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abedeth forever. Luke 4.4 4. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Galatians 3.16 Now to Abraham and his seed were these promises made, and to thy seed which is Christ. Luke 8.11 Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Colossians 1, 26-27 Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you the hope of glory. Deut 28, 38 Thou shalt carry much seed out into the field and thou shalt gather but little in, for the locust shall consume it, eating, devouring, or gluttony. See John the Baptist. Matthew 13.27 He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. The seed is the Son of Man. 2 Corinthians 9.10 Now he that ministereth seed to the sower doth minister bread for your food, and multiply your seed sown, and increase the fruits of your righteousness. John 6.58 This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. John 6.51 I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. 1 Corinthians 15.21 For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. Isaiah 45.23 The word is gone out of my mouth. Matthew 34.25 My word shall not pass away. John 17.8 I have given them the word 
thou gavest me. Psalms 119.130 The entrance of thy word giveth light. The phrase, the truth in a nutshell, has a deep occult meaning. I am the truth. My word shall not return me unto the void, but it shall accomplish what whereunto it was sent. Acts 13-26 To you is the word of salvation sent. Hebrews 2.2 2. The word of God is quick and powerful. Hebrews 6.5 Have tasted the good word of God? Peter 2.2 2. The sincere milk of the word. Isaiah 30.23 Thou shalt be given the rain of thy seed, that thou shalt sow the ground withal, and bread of the increase of the earth, and it shall be fat and plenteous. Psalms 68.11 the Lord gave the word. And yet Smith's Bible Dictionary, in its seeming efforts to find the meaning of word, fails to quote Luke 8.11, The seed is the word of God. Why is it? Was it because the immortal statement proves beyond preadventure that the seed within us is the Savior and not a man without? Error dies hard, but it always dies, and you amid its worshippers. What was the word of the Lord that came so often to the old-time prophets? The seed is the word, Luke 8.11. In all the statements in the Bible that refer to the word of the Lord, we find the same great truth told over and over again in the Hebrew Scriptures and translated, Word of the Lord, the seed. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, or Joel, or Ezekiel, or Hosea, and thus it followed that after each seed had been saved, the prophet foretold, admonished, and preached truth to the world. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.